Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come and to open your living word. How you are a God who has disclosed yourself in human history and used men over a 1,500-year period to write down your word. It gives us the opportunity to know who you are, but also how we are to live. We get to see your plan of redemption. We get to see that you are in control of all things. And most of all, we get to give you glory through the changed lives that we have, through, through the gospel that you have provided. And so, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we can truly leave this place changed from the time that we have spent t- being together. And so speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we all pray. And we all said, Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to Genesis chapter 45. And if you didn't bring your Bible today, please take one of the pew Bibles and turn to page 50. For there, I want you to be looking at the verses that we are going to be studying this morning to really begin to understand that God is beginning to use Joseph to change the life of Jacob. And so we are in Genesis chapter 45 as we walk through slowly through the life of Joseph, and we've been saying since the beginning that Joseph's life and his section within the book of Genesis is actually a part of the generations of Jacob. God is using the events in Joseph's life to change the life of Jacob because of the promises that God has given to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. Because there are promises there to where God is about to begin to build a great nation to bring about a promised one. So they've been promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. And there will be one who will come to bring about a full redemption. And so since chapter 43, Joseph has been hiding his identity and he has been testing his brothers. After 22 years of being separated from his family, he is now in the presence of his brothers, and they do not know who, who they are. And so for all intensive turns, Joseph looks like an Egyptian. He sounds and acts like an Egyptian. He uses translators to translate what he is saying and what they are saying in Hebrew back to him. And through this time, his brothers are struck with fear because he is coming across harshly. And I've called Joseph uh, through the eyes of his brothers as being the intimidator. Joseph intimidates them. And so um, he's trying to find out, and he puts them through a test, a number of different things that we've already seen. He needs to find out, is Benjamin alive? Because there are ten brothers there that were in front of him. But where is Benjamin? He needs to know if Benjamin is alive or did they do to him what they have done to Joseph? Did they kill him or did they send him into slavery? He needs to know. He also tests them to where will someone volunteer to go to get Benjamin? No one volunteers to go. Will someone volunteer to stay, to stay behind while the other brothers go to bring back Benjamin? No one volunteers to stay. Will someone return for, um, for Simeon once Simeon is imprisoned? No one returns for Simeon until the food runs out. 
Will they return the money? They get all the way back to Canaan and they don't return the money. Have they earned Jacob's trust? No, they have not earned their father's trust for the father cannot trust them to bring what he prizes most down to Egypt. Have they earned Benjamin's trust? No, Benjamin does not speak up for, before his father to say we need to get Simeon out of prison. And so all of the brothers failed the test. And then we found in, um, in chapter 43 that Judah pledges his own life after the food runs out, after the threat of starvation was upon them. Joseph pledges his own life before his father, and Jacob allows him to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. And so in chapter 44, they are now appearing once again before the intimidator. And Judah passes the test. Is Benjamin alive? There he is with, with Judah. Will someone return for Simeon? They, they're all back together. Will they return the money? They bring the money back. Have they earned Jacob's trust? Judah says, yes, I've offered my own life. And Jacob, trust me, have I earned Benjamin's trust? Yes, Benjamin, trust me that no harm will come to them. And Joseph begins to see the sins of Judah's past do not characterize his current present state. Something radical has taken place. Where previously God had not touched one of his brothers, they were, the, they were still the scoundrels as they were before 22 years previous. But now his character has been changed. God has gotten a hold of Judah's heart. And he steps forward as the leader of the brothers, as the spokesperson for his family. Joseph sees that he loves his brothers. And he's fully committing and sacrificing himself for the sake of Benjamin. And so Joseph sees that there has been a change, that God has been working in someone in his family's life to fulfill the promises that he has given to, to his family. He knows that the hound of heaven has been visibly working in one of them. And now as the unifier of the family, Judah represents the leadership within the family. And then in chapter 44, as we saw last time, the last of the test came about. How a cup was planted within Benjamin's sack as evidence of a crime. And he is about to be in prison for, the, for that theft. And how Judah then steps forward and passes the tests. In verse 33 in chapter 44, we find this, where he cries out before the man, and he says, Now, therefore, please yet let your servant remain, instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? At the end of chapter 44, Joseph finally offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin so that he would take Benjamin's penalty. For they don't know how the cup got there, but it did not matter. It was viewed as a crime. And Judah said, take me, take me instead of Benjamin, for it will kill my father. 
if he does not return. And so that is the background as we enter chapter 45. And the story begins to pick up in verse 1 of, of chapter 45, because immediately it goes into this one chapter, to where the chapter begins this way in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. It's interesting because there are six, six aspects of this passage I want you to begin to notice in which Joseph is going to be revealing himself to his brothers. There are six things that stand out to me that we're going to be hanging some of our thoughts upon. The first one is found in the verse three verses is that Joseph is about to reveal his identity to his brothers. And so as this begins to open up, we begin to see that Joseph's emotions are running rampant. He can't control himself any longer for the changes that has been taking place in Judah and his brothers. And he cries out for privacy, leave me alone, send everybody out except for these men. And so for 22 years, Joseph probably had to conceal the majority of his emotions from the Egyptian people who were around him, of how he felt, the pain that he had to endure, and no one fully knew of the turmoil and the difficulty that he experienced over those 22 years. And now all those emotions are about to erupt all those emotions are about to spew over, and he calls out for privacy. And so he begins to weep. Verse 2, so he wept loud, so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And so Joseph burst out. In tears. It's interesting because this is not the first time Joseph wept because of the situation with his brothers. Back in chapter 42, in verse 24, he hears the conversation the brothers in which he just met are having, and he's in the story of how they sent him to slavery, and he hears it, and he just breaks down, and he leaves the area, and he go, returns to his room, and he weeps. In chapter 43, in verse 30, he finally gets to see his baby brother, Joseph, from being away from him for 22 years, and his emotions just overflow once again, so much so that as he leaves the room, he needs to compose himself and wash his face. And so now he was able to manage to control himself until things explode. Until now, he, he is there with his brothers, and he needs to know that he needs to reveal his identity to them because they have passed the test. And so he tells everyone, leave me except for these foreign men. Now, to the Egyptians, that would be very, uh, very much out of the ordinary. You don't leave a head estate with just strangers, you need guards, you need recorders, you need administration people. They're, they're just those. And Joseph, because he's prime minister, can do what he wants. He sends them all out except for them. They're alone in the room, and then 
his emotions, the floodgates are all opened up. Now, his weeping is not just simple sniffles, where if you've ever sort of cried before, it's like, no, it's a full-out brawl. He's brawling. He's just crying. He's, he's just there, just, just um, uh, physically weeping in front of them. He just can't hold it in and a moment any longer. And for the brothers, the Jacob boys, they're probably wondering what exactly is going on. Because you don't usually see heads of state, leaders, people who are respected just breaking down and crying in front of you. They're, just, they're generally just strong and, and to the point doing what they have to. And now here they are in front of the ones which struck terror in their hearts, which intimidated them just bawling, crying. And so I'm sure that this struck just terror within their own hearts to be alone because previously they were accused of being spies. Previously they were being um, threatened because they were thieves. One of them was even imprisoned. But yet now he weeps. They don't know what is about to happen. And Joseph's weeping, as we see in verse 2, it is so loud that even Pharaoh's household hears it. It's just going down the halls, going, everyone hears it. And that's uh, something for, um, that you just don't hear. You just don't do that. And so this weeping continues, because we're even going to see in verse, verses 14 and 15, where he falls upon Benjamin's neck and weeps, and he kisses his brothers and weeps. And so Joseph is just very emotional at this point, because it goes back to being alone and isolated from his family, being alone and isolated from worshiping with, other, with, with God's other people, being alone and, and isolated from the, prom, from the promised land. And now he, he resides in the land of his affliction. And it just overflows with emotion. And so we begin to go to verse 3. But before we get there, I just wanted to just sort of make a footnote in passing that Joseph's emotions are not bad. We need to probably be more of, more of, of an example of showing emotions. For some reason, especially with men, we think we have to keep a stiff upper lip. We don't show our emotions. But it's okay. It's okay to show emotions when we have compassion. It's okay to show emotions when we love. It's okay to show emotions when, when we hurt. And Joseph is showing emotion here. But that's for free. But look at verse 3. We find this. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now picture in your mind Every time that he has spoken before, it was through translators. It was in Egyptian. And now in perfect Hebrew dialect, he is speaking to them. And if you know anything about the Hebrew language, you just know that it is a language that you just don't pick up overnight. You just, uh, it, it wasn't um, even all that well known at the time. And trust me, I know. Hebrew's tough. 
In the two years of learning Hebrew in seminary, I can truly say I can start a conversation and end a conversation very well. I can say hello, and I can say goodbye. It's the same word, shalom. 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 I got that one down. And so when it comes to conversations, I, can, I have the tools to help read Hebrew and understand the patterns going on. But when it comes to conversation, no, no, it, it just doesn't, it's, you have to stay in it, learn it, use it. And here Joseph is able to communicate it effectively. And the question as I came to this passage, because it's been 22 years, is that it's interesting that Joseph is still able to, uh, to speak in Hebrew effectively. Don't miss that out. My father was born in France, and he left France um, right after the war, and he was about 12, came over to this country, and then later in his life, in his uh, late 40s, uh, probably early 50s, went back to France, and he said that he was having a hard time communicating. Why? When you don't use a language, you forget the vocabulary, you forget the verb structure, and it, it just it becomes a lot of work. You know bits and pieces of things. And after 22 years, Joseph was 17, and now he's almost 40, and he's to the place to where it's perfect Hebrew. And I think, though, we don't have it in the text when he worshipped, when he prayed. How did he pray to his God who was with him? I think he prayed in Hebrew. I think he's, he taught his kids Hebrew. Why? Because that was the God of his people, the God of the covenant that he's made with his great-grandfather. And so that is why I think we don't know, but he is there speaking Hebrew. And so they are there, and he says, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Now, to the brothers, they heard the first part of, of that statement, I am Joseph. But I am confident they did not hear the second part because they were just so dumbfounded that they never really answered that, that one question. They really heard, I am Joseph, and the next part of the verse, but his brother could not answer him for they were dismayed at his pres presence. Literally, his brothers were speechless. I am Joseph. They were unable to respond. The Hebrew, the Hebrew word dismayed there means to disturb, to alarm, to terrify, to disturb, to be anxious, to be afraid, to be hurried, to be nervous. And so depending on the context, um, you would find what the meaning is. I have a feeling, though it's just... Tim's Hebrew, it's like all of that, all at once. Because when they hear, I am Joseph, they went from being um, unaware of what was going on to being disturbed by the actions of this Egyptian to bewilderment. Who? Who? Joseph? To amazement by looking at him and seeing, how did we not see this? To euphoria. Joseph is alive to utter terror. He's going to kill us. 
all that in the matter of seconds, and they could not answer him. I'm sure that the same thought happened to them in which what happened in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 28, in which the, um, um, they find their money in, in their sacks, and they know that they're going to be viewed as thieves. And it says in uh, Genesis 42, verse 28, And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? If they felt it was payback time there, they were feeling it was payback time here with someone who they betrayed who they disowned and were, had all intentions of killing him, but rather went for the prophet and sold him into slavery, one that they despised and they got rid of and lied to their father time and time and time again to where Jacob refused comfort for 22 years. The day of reckoning must be coming for them. All of that in a matter of seconds, and they could not answer him. I'm sure previously they probably thought that Joseph was dead. After 22 years of slavery, he's probably dead of, of just being worked to death. But right now, he's in front of their eyes. He's alive and well, and he's prime minister of Egypt. He's second in command to Pharaoh. And so we come to the second area this morning in which he reveals himself. Not only does he reveal his identity to his brothers, but he begins to reveal his theology, which is based on how he handles his actions. And so in verses 4 through 8, we begin to see that Joseph reveals his understanding of God to his brothers in what has taken place. And so look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. Stop right there. And as we come to this one section of the story, we begin to see and understand more of Joseph's walk with God. In that walk, it's a deep, mature walk. With God, because we see his faith and understanding of God through his conversation that he has with his brothers. In verse 5, he mentions God, for God has sent me. In verse 7, we see God sent me. In verse 8, it is not you who sent me, but God. And then at the second part of verse 8, God has made me father to Pharaoh. In verse 9, God made me Lord of all Egypt. And it seems like in just about every conversation that Joseph has, beginning in chapter 37, he is mentioning God. The God in which um, spoke to his great-grandfather and then to uh, the, the grandfather Isaac and then to his father was a God that he was worshiping and walked with. So much so in chapter 39, we're told four times that God was with Joseph. God had a special part in his life because he had to. How could he endure the, all the struggles, all the pain, all the rejection for 22 years in the land of his own affliction, being away from his family, being away from the covenant provinces, being away from the covenant land? 
but yet he had such a close walk. And so we begin to see that from the events that were passed down from his forefathers, it was real to him. It was genuine to him. Now, where does this faith begin to come from? Well, it came from Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, in which God chose Abraham to bring about a nation, in which he promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. But I want you to look at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 on how Joseph had the same salvation that Abraham had. That is why he's confident that God is at work in his life. God, he is confident that God is at work to bring about those covenant promises that he has made before. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, we find this, that Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, which is the Lord, reckoned to it, to him, Abraham, as righteousness. That is a significant verse in all of the Bible. It's so significant that Paul quotes from it in Romans chapter 4 and in the book of Galatians. How did Abraham believe in, and have salvation? Because he believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation in the Old Testament came about the same way as it comes about in the New Testament. It has always been salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, Messiah alone. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the one who would crush the serpent's head to be that perfect sacrifice. In the New Testament, they looked back to the cross where Christ died and who was the Passover lamb. And so that is how Abraham got saved. He believed in God, credited to his account as righteousness. But yet there's another verse I want you to look at. In John chapter 8 and verse 56, we find this. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. And it's a section to where, once again, they're trying to find evidence against him to put him to death. And we find in verse 56 this statement that Jesus makes. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Huh. Where is that found? Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, where he believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness. There was something made known to Abraham about this coming Messiah. And then in the following verses, they're looking at Jesus. You're not even 50 years old yet. Abraham lived 2,000 years previously. How? You weren't even born. And then our Lord says, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they pick up stones to stone him because he was equating himself with God. And so Abraham believed God. That got passed down to Isaac. And it got passed down to Jacob. And Jacob passed it on to his sons. And Joseph heard the stories on what God had done, the promises that was made. He believed it just as Abraham did. And it was counted to him as righteousness. That is the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Christ to Abraham who believed. It was crediting to Abraham, who was spiritually bankrupt in his account, 
and given vast riches of saving grace, which was credited to his account. Abraham previously was standing naked, fully exposed to God, and God took the perfect righteousness of the promised Messiah and clothed Abraham with it. And so then God looks at Abraham and he only sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in his life. And so what was taking place in Abraham's life is, is, is what took place in Joseph's life. In Genesis chapter 15, that is the place where Abraham walked through the narrow gate. And it's the same faith that Joseph has which shaped his life And now it's coming about in his explanation on how he views the situation that has transpired over the 22 years and why his heart is not bitter and why his heart is not hardened and how he can move forward with a completely clear conscience. And so he tells his brothers back at verse 4, of Genesis 45, and Joseph said, please come closer to me. That's a statement of invitation. Come close. I want you close to me. It's interesting because Joseph's previous relationship was shattered with his brothers because the brothers did the shattering. But now, Those who had rejected him, he invites them to come closer into his presence than what he had before. This one statement is nothing new to the scripture because if you sort of look throughout scripture, we find admonitions to come close, to to come near. Let me just give you three of them for you to write down. In Matthew chapter 28, our Lord has risen from the dead. The angel is at the tomb in verse 6, and the women were looking for for Jesus' body, and the angel tells them, he's not here, for he has risen. And he said, come, see the place where he was lying. Come, come on in, see the place. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples concerning the children who were around him in verse 14. He said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then the verse that I love, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is preaching and he tells his audience, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Come unto me. And we find this this invitation time and time again. God allows a sinner who does not deserve it to come into his presence, to come close. It is a statement of invitation. And then we find this in the next part of verse. And they came closer and said to him, and Joseph said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph is about to tell them his perspective on what had taken place over the last 22 years. And it's interesting because God is at the forefront of everything. And we get to see, and there are two things that stands out. The first thing is Joseph attributes his brother's actions that they have done to God's sovereignty. 
He attributes the actions to God's sovereignty. And then secondly, he attributes his brother actions to their their own will, to their own choices. And it's interesting on how he sort of brings this about. For the Joseph, there's no tension between God working and and their decisions. It just sort of works, works together. And so these words are based upon Joseph's knowledge and belief in who God is and how he has revealed himself. And he has learned to have a strong trust in the sovereignty of God. And he is about to give them the divine perspective behind their sinful actions. And so God is there. God is the one who is at work. And that's why he starts off the beginning of verse 5 by saying what, what he says. He says, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Do not, be in, do not grieve or be in pain. And don't be furious with yourselves because of what you, of what you had done. The reality of one's sinful action can make a person go from either feeling completely and utterly worthless to completely or utterly angry at themselves for being exposed. And Joseph wants to ease any kind of distress that they they may be feeling about. Because after 22 years, their life was filled with guilt. The hound of heaven was nipping at them that things were wrong. 22 years of suppressing what they had done to him. And Joseph tells them, do not be troubled in what they have done Because why? God is the one who has orchestrated it all. Joseph attributes his brother's actions to God's sovereignty. And and, and then in in the the following verses, he gives them proofs. Let Let me tell you why God is behind it all. Do not be grieved, don't be angry because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there's still five years left to go in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. To keep you alive by a great deliverance. And so he's telling them there was a famine coming. And the only way for God's people to survive the famine, it was to send me here to Egypt to be able to provide for you. You needed a great deliverance. And then in verse 8, now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, a lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. It goes back to his understanding of the promises that God gave to Abraham, that them being God's people, the promised one needed to come. He promised them a land, a seed, or a blessing. He promised them to become a great nation, and they needed to be preserved because the famine was coming. And how to accomplish that, he had to send Joseph to Egypt to preserve them. So he tells them that God was at work to keep them alive, to give them a great, uh, a great deliverance, that God made Joseph a father figure in which he could give Pharaoh counsel 
like a son going to a father. And now he's in charge of all of Pharaoh's affairs by being prime minister in Egypt. It all happened because you sold me into slavery. So Joseph attributes the brother's actions to the sovereignty of God. But also at the same time, we, he doesn't let his brothers off the hook. Granted, God was in it all, but you, you still didn't do what you were supposed to do. You still sin before me. And we get to see that. You were the ones who sold me. They're the ones who chose. And so we get to see this conflict between God's sovereignty and man's accountability, man's decisions. And Joseph is saying, because he, no, uh, he has no conflict with, with what was going on, God was in it all despite the actions that you had done. And so it wasn't you who sent me here, he says, but it was God. There's a great verse to begin to understand sort of, um, sort of some of this conflict, that God is sovereign. He is in control. I want you to look at in your Bible Isaiah chapter 64 and verses 9 and 10. We get to see one of the great verses that begin to um, give us an understanding that God is sovereign over every life, life event that can happen whether on the grand stage, in major events, or even small events that happens in a person's life. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we find this. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We get to see in Isaiah 46 that God is sovereign. It means he, he is not a passive spectator. A sovereign is one who rules. And he is ruling. And God is exercising his control over every facet in life. And Joseph understood that. He, he, he was clinging to that. And he's telling his brothers, God is the one who accomplished it all. And so when you begin to understand God's sovereignty, there are four areas that sort of stand out. The first one, one needs to understand that God is supreme. About the, he is, it talks about the supremacy of God, that he is superior to all. And we see that in Isaiah 46. There is no one like God. There is no one on his level. There is, he is the most high God. There is no one higher than him. He is all that he is. There is no one equal to him. And God is supreme. For you to be sovereign, for you to be uh, the ruler, you have to be supreme. He is the most high. But secondly, you can write down, he is the predeterminer. He predetermines everything. There are no plan Bs in God's creative plan. There's just one plan that was formed from before the foundation of the world, and that is being um, brought out. And so it's being driven to his ultimate conclusion. He is that sole architect, 
of the master plan in all of human history. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 28 that he causes all things to work together for his good. God is the predeterminer. He has the plan, the big details, the small details. In the life of nations, he rises up nations. He puts nations down. He knows every detail in your life, and they're just as important as the larger details in human history. He's predetermined everything. But thirdly, not only is he supreme and he's the predeterminer, but he is creator. When you think about God's sovereignty, he he created everything. He's all-powerful. All that there is, he spoke into existence. Because it pleased him. And so he has a plan to accomplish that plan. He created all that there is, and he's bringing about that plan. And then fourthly, he's the administrator. He is the one who is carrying that plan out. From eternity past, he predestined all things. That is his sovereignty. From eternity past, and he's moving it to Uh, to eternity uh, future and all of history is working out that one plan. And so God is sovereign. Joseph understands that sovereignty and that control. He understands the promises that he has made and what limited knowledge that that he has had and implications. But he knew that there would be a promised one. There would be a promised land. There would be one who would come to bring about redemption for his people. And there would be a universal blessing among the nations that they would um, outnumber the sands of the seashore, if you would. And so God has a purpose, and he's bringing that purpose about. And so he tells them that. But yet at the same time, he tells them that their actions were done by their own decisions. And so even though God is at work, he doesn't let his brothers off the hook of their sinful actions, which sort of raises the question, doesn't it? Did God force the brothers to accomplish his will? Well, if the Apostle Paul would hear, he would say, may it never be. No, 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 God God doesn't do that. God doesn't force anyone into anything. He is sovereign, but yet the brothers are guilty still of their sin. And so you may ask the question, why would God use sinful people in the sins of simple people in order to accomplish his will? It's a good question. It's because, which you already know the answer, there are no sinless people for him to use. There's only been one of them. And he died on the cross to accomplish the Father's will and to redeem those who were sinful. And so, um, and so God did not force his brothers to sin. God is not the author of sin. And so God just used their sin. And I would even maintain that God restrained their sin because they wanted to kill Joseph and leave him in a hole to sort of die of dehydration. But he changed their hearts to sell him into slavery for profit. And so God used their sinful actions to accomplish his purpose. In doing so, he did not force himself upon these sinful men and to make them do sinful things. They already were sinners. And so there's a tension there. 
And Joseph had no problem with, with that tension. He said, you chose to sin, but God was in it all to accomplish his will. And we're going to build more on this next week when we begin to understand that God is at work to accomplish his will in every circumstance, no matter how easy or how difficult things are. And so God sends Joseph to Egypt because there's going to be a seven-year famine. Two years are down. Famine's going to get even worse over the next five years. They need to be saved. They need preservation. They need deliverance. And Joseph is going to be one to accomplish that. But there's a third element I want, to, I want you to look at in verses 9 through 15. Joseph reveals his plan. In these verses, Joseph has been thinking how to accomplish um, God's plan through him. And he's probably been thinking about this for a long time. How can I do it? And he has it all planned out. He says in verse 9, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has sent me Lord, had made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your, herd and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there's still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, the eyes of Brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell your father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that I have seen, and you must hurry. Bring my father down here. And so Joseph tells him, I want you to go back and tell our father everything and what God has done. Hurry! about it. Don't delay. Why? Jacob is a 130-year-old man. His days are numbered. And so he wants him to find out that he is alive and God has been at work. Don't delay. He wants them to know of God's provision through Joseph's current circumstance that he has made me Lord, prime minister over all Egypt. He wants him to know of God's provision through the resources that Joseph will provide everything for them. And he wants his father to know God's provision through knowledge because they don't really know, unless they heard it through the grapevine, that there are five years left. The Egyptian leaders know there are five years of famine, but the people don't know, and they're in, they're in a different land. So tell him, I am alive and well, that God has prospered him while he was down there, so much so he's prime minister. He has a special place set out in Egypt. Come, come see with your own eyes. And then we have verse 13. Now, you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry. Bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. In verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers 
talked with him. That part I wanted to get more, uh, more about. Who talked first? Did the brothers fill Joseph in and all the details that transpired? Or did Joseph sort of uh, major in the talking and all that God had accomplished? But they had a long talk. When you begin to have reconciliation between a feuding party, you begin to take down the barriers. And they're taking down the barriers here. But hurry. Leave. Tell our Father. And yet, fourthly, I want you to notice in verses 16 and 20 that God is going to reveal Joseph's favor with Pharaoh. God is at work to reveal to the brothers that Joseph has a favor with the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so the news begins to start spreading. Joseph is, is crying. Joseph is happy. Why is he happy? Joseph's family is here. And so it began to spread. Look at verse 16. And the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come. And it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So Pharaoh's probably thinking, Joseph has a family? <laughs> I, thought, I thought he was a slave. Joseph is there at, like a father to me, and it is putting joy in his heart, and it put joy in Pharaoh's heart. And so normally... When you're in a high-status social position, being Pharaoh, everybody else is, is inferior. You really don't care about, about what is going on, especially for Joseph. His family has come from herders and livestock keepers. They're the lowest of the low in Egypt. But we'll talk more about that when we look at chapter 46. But Pharaoh, he's excited. Joseph, my number two. Or would that be my number one? My number one, he has family, and he is thrilled. That makes Pharaoh's heart jump for joy. And it's interesting because Moses tells us this, and didn't have to, because of what happens in another Pharaoh's heart to where there's Moses, and Pharaoh's heart got hard towards God and God's people. But here, towards Joseph's God and God's people, he's thrilled. So much so that in verse 17, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I want to become personally involved with these events for you. Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast and go to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your household and come to me. And I will give you the best land of Egypt. And you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this. Take my presidential wagons, if you would. Not crummy old wagons. The best of the best. Pharaoh's wagons. From the land of Egypt, for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And they're going to take and go to the land of Goshen, which was prime for livestock. It was a prime place for people to live and to tend and to expand into a nation. And so Pharaoh was thrilled. And he orders, take whatever you need and go and bring them back. Because he knew it was a joy to Joseph's heart. 
Only God can sort of come about that. Pharaoh wants to pay. I will pay for, to bring them back. Take whatever you need. Take all the food. Go. Bring them back. Only God could accomplish that. Because it doesn't happen in the book of Exodus. His heart was hard. You, you guys are going to get nothing. But yet we come to a fifth element. In verses 21 through 28, Joseph's brothers reveal the truth to Jacob. They hurry back to their father, and now they're standing eye to eye with Jacob, and we find this. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for, for the journey. And to each of them, look at this, they got new clothes. And he gave them changes of garments. And to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his family, on the journey. We're not told how long the trip took, but I'm sure they traveled fast. And I'm sure as they traveled, they stood out because normal travelers just travel what they have. But this is presidential equipment going up the road. I'm sure they may have even had some guards because it's Pharaoh stuff. And so they are there bringing gifts. They are there with provisions. They are there to have their family ride in like a presidential limo to come back to Egypt to be escorted down. And Joseph gave one last requirement. This is great in verse 24 because he's forgiven his brothers. But in verse 24, look at that. So he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Why? He knows his brothers. <laughs> they, they're brothers. They, they, they quarrel. And so that was, that's a very odd statement. But even though God has changed them, they, everyone has the ability to fall back on old habits. And he didn't want them to quarrel on anything except to look forward on God's blessing and how God was the one who was bringing about all of the activities. And so in verse 25, Jacob, they're standing right there. Jacob is going to learn two things. And they went up from Egypt and they came, verse 25, to the land of Canaan to their father. And they find this in verse 26. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And so after 22 years of mourning, he hears this news that he is finally alive. And then secondly, in the next part of the verse, they tell him that he, not only is he alive, he's ruler over land, the land of Egypt. He's prime minister. He's running the place. And so he hears this, this old man, 130 years old. We find this, but he was stunned for he did not believe them. He hears this and he goes, wait a second. You guys went down to the intimidator to get more food. And this intimidator is Joseph. And my son is alive. And not only is he alive, he's running the place. I don't believe you. 
it, and to us, it, it wouldn't make sense. But all they had to do was look. Look at our clothes. Look out the window. We got the, the presidential limo waiting to take us down. Look at all the food. Look at all the provisions. It's true. Verse 27, And when they told them all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. I have that last statement underlined in my Bible. Why? Jacob mourned for his son for 22 years. He was overly protective of his next favorite son for 22 years of losing him. He refused comfort from any of his family, even comfort from God, for 22 years. And then he hears the story. Pharaoh's provisions show up, and Jacob began to reveal that there was something real about this report that Joseph was alive and well. And then in verse 28, we find this. And then Israel said, that's key. He goes back to his covenantal name. Moses wants to know that he is having the proper eternal perspective on what is going on. Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before he dies. Joseph's spirit is renewed. And I think it's more than just him realizing that Joseph was alive because even when a loved one pass, passes, we sort of get the feeling if I could have just five more minutes to talk to them, to tell them how much I missed them and loved them. It, it, it's sort of more, more than that. It's more of realizing that God has been in it God's covenantal promises are, are coming about in what shallow faith that he had in God in not bringing those things about. He's seeing all of the events that had taken place in his family through an eternal lens, with an eternal perspective. He wasn't looking at the here and now, but he was looking at things on how God is working things out. God was at work to bring about those promises that God had said to him in an audible voice to expand the same promises made to Abraham, his grandfather, to his father, Isaac, and now to him to confirm those things. God was at work, and his spirit was revived, renewed, energized. And God, and he realized that God has not failed him at all. God was there all the time, and he began to get into his heart a peace that only God can bring about. And so they reveal what God has been doing. But yet there's a sixth area that, that we're going to be looking at. And the sixth revelation takes place next week. Because you may say, okay, that's all and good, but there's some parts of the story that we missed. Ah, mon ami, that is true. The little gray cells are, are working. There are some parts I did not emphasize. Because Joseph is going to reveal the fruit of forgiveness. And though we're at the end of the chapter, 
there are many things that transpire here in this passage that will be the, a, the result or the fruit of a person who forgives. Because outside of the cross of Christ, there is no greater chapter in all of the Bible on forgiveness except here in Genesis chapter 45. How could a person endure hardship, struggle, rejection, being away from the promised land, being away from uh, the covenant promises, being away from those who worship in, in God, being in the land of his affliction? How can a person take all that pain and struggle and jettison it? It's through forgiveness. How can a person forgive in the way that they should? And we're going to be looking at that next time. Though it doesn't talk about forgiveness, we see the fruit of forgiveness being manifested in that entire chapter. But until then, I want to ask you a couple questions in a few moments that we have left. How is your trust in God? God is sovereign. He is in control. Is he the Lord of your life? Or are you running your own life, worshiping God whenever it's most convenient, thinking that you're doing deeds before God that, that pleases him, but yet your hope and trust is not found in Christ? Or maybe you, maybe you are a believer and there's just an ongoing struggle. God is sovereign. And Joseph's brothers are seeing this clearly, like night and day, that God is sovereign working over those 22 years. So it begs the question, how is your trust in God? Because either if God is not sovereign, then why even bother to pray? There is no reason to pray if God is not sovereign, but he is. Isaiah 46, he is in control. There is a predetermined plan. He brings up nations, he puts nations down, and he cares in every avenue of your life, in every event of your life, in every person that you love, in everything that sort of takes place, he cares, he is in control. So how is your trust in him? But secondly, how is your heart this morning? Is it revived? like Jacob, because of the faith that you have. And so it begs the question. Jacob finally has his eyes on the complete picture, and he's still going to struggle in, in chapter 46 with it because he's been told by God not to go down to Egypt, but that's okay. God's telling him to go. He's ready to go, but there's things plaguing him. But where are you? Father, so much more can be said this morning with things. And yet, there may be one who is here today that who is struggling with how they're living their life. They don't have the assurance of their faith because it's not found in the one who you have promised to die in their place. They have no assurance that if they were to die today, where they would go, they just sort of hope that they would go to heaven. But when they're asked the next question, 
why do you think that God will let you in? It all falls back on what they have done. I've went to church. I've given money. I helped the poor. I did this. That's all work righteousness. That's all their own ability. Because you'll never get there. It's like a slippery hill. But when one sees their sin, sees their complete inability to appease an angry God who has to judge sin because he is utterly holy, and yet they find a message of hope that there is one who was their substitute, that was their replacement, that he bore the this, this sin and wrath that was destined for them upon the cross, and that it is through faith in Christ alone that merits salvation. Father, if there's someone here or by video that does not know that, work in their hearts. Make their lives hard so that they can see the glories of the cross. And Father, and, and for those who know you, let us leave this place with a renewed commitment that there is a God who is in control and there is a part that I can play in that eternal workings out to bring your name glory. So thank you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.